the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Today we're going to talk with Glenn Damon, who is the author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministries Matter for Every Church in America. Looking forward to that conversation as we consider the value of every single expression of the body of Christ stretched out across these fruited plains and beyond. So Glenn Damon will be my guest uh, later this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, in a rather unusual twist, we're going to talk in the last segment of today's program with Major Scott Husing, uh, United States Marine Corps. He's the author of Regnery's award-winning bestseller, Echo in Ramadi. We talked with him about that at the time the book was released. He's going to offer a military perspective on issues from Washington, the Pacific Rim, and the uh, summit with the North Koreans. Uh, that's all coming up again in our final segment of today's program. So I'm looking forward to this um, rather peculiarly peculiarly timed <laughs> final segment of today's program. Well, we're going to talk about uh, the North Korean summit. It was rather brief, and there's been a lot of talk about what should have been done, what has been done, what all of it means. And I'm hoping we can suspend our own political biases for a few moments to just evaluate what actually happened and pray and hope that uh, things would continue to move forward in a way that would be constructive and end the the battle that's gone on. Thankfully, only the battle of words up to uh, this point, but it would end the conflict in the Korean Peninsula in a way that everyone can live with. Well, taking a look at some of the developing stories of the day, the president, of course, and Kim Jong-un signed a comprehensive document, which is somewhat misleading. We'll go into some detail a bit later, where the North Korean leader committed to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula during their groundbreaking summit in Singapore. President Trump hopes to uh, start a new chapter between the U.S. and North Korea, and an emotional Dennis Rodgers. Rodman praised President Trump's meeting with Kim in a television interview. He blasted former President Obama for not taking the North Korean leader seriously as he brought a message from Kim Jong-un to the president, or at least offered to share the message with the president. I can't imagine why President Obama uh, wouldn't agree to meet with Dennis Rodman tongue-in-cheek. Well, Tuesday's primary uh, focused on gubernatorial races in three states, Maine, Nevada, and South Carolina. And Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and the Justice Department are battling over Grassley's request to speak to the FBI agent who was key to the indictment against former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in the Russia investigation. But first, President Trump and Kim Jong-un signed that comprehensive document where the North uh, committed to complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula during their historic summit in Singapore. The president thanked Kim for taking the first bold step toward a bright new future for his people. He said he hoped to start a new history and write a new chapter between the United States and North Korea. No one could take their eyes off the Trump and Kim um, first meeting, whose summit was the first between a sitting United States president and a North Korean leader. The historic agreement came after the two leaders held several meetings throughout the day. Trump was asked by a reporter if Kim agreed to denuclearize, and he said, 
we are starting that process very quickly. The president didn't uh, refer to the document as a treaty or an agreement. The joint declaration states that the U.S. has committed to providing security guarantees to Pyongyang. It's uh, unclear exactly what Trump has promised Kim in terms of security. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo declined to say on Monday whether guarantees might include withdrawing U.S. troops from the Korean Peninsula. Kim, who's uh, sitting alongside Trump, said through a translator, we had an historic meeting and decided to leave the past behind. A reporter asked Trump if he would be willing to invite Kim to the White House, and he responded, absolutely, I would. Well, Nikki Haley certainly has brought Trump's maximum pressure campaign down on North Korea at the U.N. Security. Council, and that while the term is, uh, has been abandoned by the president, the maximum pressure campaign of sanctions will not be lifted until uh, there's verifiable um, elimination of the nuclear program in North Korea. Meanwhile, Dennis Rodman, NBA Hall of Famer and longtime friend of Kim Jong-un, who has visited North Korea several times, broke down in tears during a televised interview early Tuesday as the president and Kim held their historic summit. In a dramatic interview with CNN's Chris Cuomo that quickly became emotionally charged, Rodman wearing a red Make America Great Again hat blasted former President Obama for not taking the North Korean leader seriously. Five years ago, Rodman said. Kim told Rodman certain things to relate to Obama concerning potential negotiations, but the former president didn't even give me the time of day. He just brushed me off, but that didn't deter me. So I'm not sure if he's taking uh, partial credit for the meeting uh, yesterday, but nonetheless. It's all about the race for governor in the primaries today in Maine, Nevada, and South Carolina. While a couple of Senate contests in states voting uh, today are considered competitive in November's general election. The primaries for those seats aren't quite so dramatic. The gubernatorial primary races, meanwhile, are stealing the Tuesday show. President Trump will be a factor in Republican elections in South Carolina. Republican Governor Henry McMaster, an early Trump supporter in 2016 when he was lieutenant governor, has the president's backing but faces challenges from four other gubernatorial candidates. And Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley isn't backing down as the Justice Department rebuffs his repeated attempts to speak with the FBI agent whose interview with Michael Flynn was used to indict the ex-national security advisor in the Russia probe. This is no ordinary criminal case, Grassley said. He wrote, rather, in a June 6th letter to the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, Congress has a right to know the full story and to know it now. Grassley is pressing his request anew after the Department of Justice once again rejected his bid to speak to that agent, FBI agent Joe Pinka, and the uh, and to obtain rather FBI records of that interview. Flynn pleaded guilty in special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia probe to making false statements to the FBI in that interview. He also lost his job at the White House after he was said to have misled Vice President Pence about a discussion with then Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak. And on this day in 1994, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman were slashed to death outside their Los Angeles home, or rather her Los Angeles home. O.J. Simpson would later be acquitted of the killings in the criminal trial, but was eventually held liable in a civil case. And in 1987, on this day... President Ronald Reagan, during a visit to Berlin, exhorts uh, the Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall. And on this day in 1963, civil rights leader Medgar Evers, 37 years old at the time, was shot and killed outside his home in Jackson, Mississippi. Well, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un signed a document on uh, Tuesday, their time, I guess it was still Monday, our time in Pyongyang, 
uh, saying that Pyongyang rather would work toward complete denuclearization. Among the uh, concessions made in that document, the United States and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea commit to establish new U.S. DPRK relations in accordance with the desire of the people of the two countries for peace and prosperity. The United States and the DPRK will join their efforts to build a lasting and stable peace regime on the Korean Peninsula. Reaffirming the April 27th, 2018 uh, declaration, the DPRK commits to work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. And the United States and the DPRK commit to recovering the POW MIA remains, including the immediate repatriation of those already identified. Well, that was the core of the the, uh, agreement that was made, but was certainly only the first step in what will very likely be a very long process if it uh, if it continues as the president uh, indicated he believes it will. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our look at some of the day's news. Also looking forward to a conversation with Glenn Damon, the author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 22 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in our next segment, we're going to talk with Glenn Damon, author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. Because after all, as the scriptures make quite clear, we are connected to one another and we are dependent on one another to carry out God's uh, eternal plan and the role that he uh, gives us as his body to play until he comes again. Well, President Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un signed that document I made reference to just before the break on Tuesday, Tuesday their time, Monday our time, stating that Pyongyang would work toward complete denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. It's an historic concession, which was one of the requirements the U.S. sought at the summit in Singapore. Now, the definition of what those words mean and an agreement on uh, what's going to actually be done is um, a question that remains to be answered. But President Trump, as part of the historic summit of on North Korea, or rather with the North Korean leader, reversed a longstanding U.S. policy by calling for an end to military drills on the Korean Peninsula. Now, later in the program, we're going to talk with Major Scott Husing, U.S. Um, um, Marine Corps, about that as having served in areas of conflict, um, and we'll get his perspective on it. But this came as something of a surprise. It's not clear, and it seems unlikely, that he spoke with our allies in the region, Japan or South Korea, uh, and uh, with military leaders here in this country. But the president said that he is willing to call for an end to military drills on the Korean Peninsula, saying he wants to bring U.S. troops home from the region, although uh, making the uh, the caveat that that would not come soon and it's not linked to this deal. The president's latest uh, convention-defying move on the international stage in less than a week. He said, we will be stopping the war games. We will, uh, calling them war games. We will be, um, we will save ourselves a tremendous amount of money unless and until we see the future negotiation is not going along like it should. Now, many are suggesting that this is a a very small concession, given the fact that you can um, uh, uh, restate them rather quickly. They only happen twice a year, but there is some concern about whether or not this was a concession, a bridge too far, if you will. And again, we'll talk about that later in the program. He also said he wants to bring our soldiers back home from the region, though added this is not part of the equation right now. Uh, the South Koreans have a pretty impressive army. It's 
uh, in the region. And uh, again, we'll talk with our guests later in the program about that. Well, by, while both moves uh, could align the president's general principles of cutting costs and pulling soldiers back from conflicts where possible, they're sure to cause some concern in Seoul, in Japan, and certainly here among U.S. military officials, uh, which uh, they view the presence of the U.S. troops in the military exercises and important uh, as important to the regional security uh, there. So we'll uh, we'll talk more about that. But again, uh, a statement that was made after uh, the president uh, had finished his meeting with Kim Jong-un. Another uh, thing the president uh, agreed upon with the North Korean leader, Kim Jong-un, is to recover the remains of U.S. military personnel missing in action and presumed dead from the North Korean war. In a statement signed by both leaders, the countries agreed to recover uh, the remains and the immediate uh, repatriation of those already identified. And the statement also assures uh, North Korea that they would uh, work toward complete denuclearization. Nearly 7,800 American troops remain unaccounted for from the 1950-1953 war in the Korean Peninsula. About 5,300 were lost in North Korea. According to the Pentagon's Defense POW MIA accounting agency, most missing Americans died in major battles or as prisoners of war in North Korea. Others died in small villages or along the wayside. Most uh, aircraft crashes also occurred near the battle zones or roads connecting them. Now, for family members who lost loved ones... This is a a major uh, win for them. The effort will be the continuation of past missions, but uh, that abruptly ended over a decade ago when North Korea's increasing hostility and development of nuclear weapons was in uh, full view. Between 1996 and 2005, joint U.S.-North Korea military search teams conducted over 30 recovery missions, recovered 229 sets of American remains at that time. The recovery missions ended as the safety of American recovery teams couldn't be guaranteed, and North Korea conducted its first nuclear test. And that was back in 2006. So uh, according to this agreement, that is uh, going to resume. Well, there are plenty of critics, and I appreciated uh, Kristen Witten writing for uh, Fox News, pointing out what the critics have missed as we're trying to understand the importance of or the value of things that were done or left undone, said or not said. And she points that uh, President Trump conceded very little. During the President, uh, during the President Clinton era negotiations with North Korea, the United States and our allies agreed to millions of dollars in food aid, easily converted to cash on the black market, and billions of dollars in so-called energy assistance that were a huge boon to Pyongyang. But the North kept its nuclear program. During the administration of President George W. Bush, U.S. negotiators offered cash payments to North Korea just to get the nation back to the negotiating table. We relieved uh, pressure from tough financial sanctions and sent other assistance. That didn't work any better than President Clinton's approach. President Trump got to this point by ignoring all the establishment experts. This time, President Trump and Secretary, Secretary of State uh, Mike Pompeo have have insisted that North Korea undertake actual disarmament before real financial concessions or even sanctions relief. This is proof that peace paradoxically comes from strength. In uh, close coordination with our allies in Japan and South Korea, uh, President Trump has agreed merely to suspend occasional military exercises. He also agreed to provide a security assurance to North Korea in exchange for its nuclear weapons, part of what Pompeo has described all along as convincing North Korea that giving up its nuclear arsenal will actually make it safer. The main purpose of the U.S. troops um, 
Uh, America would never uh, was never going to in, uh, vote, rather invade the Asian mainland with just 28,000 troops. But the main purpose of the U.S. troops is to act as a tripwire to ensure North Korea understands that going to war against South Korea would again draw in the United States. The U.S. troops are best replaced by air and naval capabilities elsewhere in Asia that would help deter an expansionist China. Well, the critics of President Trump's uh, agreement are already flooding the airwaves. One complaint is that President Trump conceded too much just by appearing with Kim Jong-un, suggesting it was propaganda, uh, a coup for the North Korean regime. Well, these critics don't understand North Korean propaganda, which has said for the last 65 years since the end of the Korean War that the United States was poised to invade at any moment. Pyongyang used these claims to justify North Korea's large military, its nuclear weapons program, and its Stalinist dictatorship. The images of President Trump and Kim meeting on friendly terms undermine a key pillar of North Korea's hostile identity. Another complaint is that the outcome of the summit is too vague. But what was more important in Singapore was a meeting of the minds between the two leaders and their top aides, precisely what Trump got. Delving into nuclear yields, missile throw weights, uh, spent fuel quantities, enrichment capabilities, visual uh, material stockpiles, uh, levels of detail for program disclosures and the like can now come after the leaders have gotten the overall concept and framework in place. The one new detail President Trump did raise was a missile engine testing facility. Kim readily agreed to shut down the location. Finally, some are saying President Trump didn't do enough to press Kim on North Korea's egregious violations of human rights, which ranged from running a huge gulag complex to concealing Japanese citizens it abducted in the past. Obama years uh, during the Obama years, during the, which a few U.S. officials or liberal human rights activists cared, President Trump's first priority has to be the security of the United States. No one should expect the world's most Stalinist regime to change overnight. In fact, President Trump did raise North Korea's human rights with Kim, but uh, it didn't go much further than that. So, too, is Vice President Mike Pence, who met with North Korean uh, defectors and spotlighted the issue at the Winter Olympics and at other times. Well, these steps, along with the specter of future presidential pressure for a post-nuclear North Korea to engage economically with the world, amount to more than any administration has done for the beleaguered North Korean people. Importantly, President Trump got to this point by ignoring all the establishment experts. All along, they said that the president's use of pressure and blunt talk about the North Korean regime and its leader was dangerous. They criticized him for agreeing to meet, criticized when he canceled the summit, and now criticize him for conducting the meeting. The critics also said that President Trump's decision to cancel the flawed Iran nuclear deal, terminate the phony Paris climate agreement, and refute uh, refused to be uh, browbeaten on a on trade at the dying G7 summit in Canada would all harm the prospects for diplomacy with Kim. But in reality, those steps achieve the opposite, conveying to North Korea that there is finally a U.S. president who will fight resolutely for American interests and not just go along to get along. The path ahead will have twists and turns. But President Trump has set the stage for fundamental change in Asia. Now, some of this is not, uh, and again, that's quoting from uh, Christian Witten writing a column for Fox News. Uh, what happens moving forward, although the president announced that he trusts Kim Jong-un after the very brief meeting, it's sort of like uh, George W. Bush, who looked in the eyes of Vladimir Putin and felt like, you know, they had something going there. It's it's not possible to know one's character uh, by simply glancing across a table, although as a business person, he has used that tactic uh, to his uh, private success. But there is a history to look to. There is a 
there are um, things that have happened in the past that will inform what happens moving forward. And let's just hope that uh, there's uh, not um, overconfidence on the part of the president and that his advisors will help to navigate what happens next skillfully. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we'll uh, switch gears. We'll talk with Glenn Damon. He's the author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. He is a pastor, by the way, of River Christian Church in Stevenson, Washington, where he's served since 1991. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 38 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if relevance and innovation are the siren's call of church leaders, then author Glenn Damon offers a clear and winsome corrective in The Forgotten Church, published by Moody. He doesn't argue against relevance and innovation, but rather shows how rural church ministry is profoundly relevant and timeless. Nor does he disparage urban and suburban pastoral ministry. Rather, he argues for just how important it is in partnership with rural churches. Well, throughout the pages of the book, an urban and suburban reader will have misconceptions about rural life and ministry gently challenged and corrected. A rural pastor will have his ministry and all the unique challenges he faces validated, encouraged, and supported. And while the very intentional trend in ministry for decades has been toward urban centers and suburban megachurches, often to the exclusion of the uh, rural pastorate, Damon points a picture, or rather paints a picture, of both the need for and the impact of invested rural pastors. With uh, stories, statistics, personal experience, He shows how impactful a rooted rural pastor can be in the entire life of a community. And I'm looking forward to this conversation, as I think we all will benefit. Well, Glenn Damon is uh, the author of Leading the Small Church, Shepherding the Small Church, Developing Leaders for the Small Church, When Shepherds Weep, and Shepherding the Small Church. He grew up on a farm in northern Idaho and attended Big Sky Bible College, Western Seminary, and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Since 1991, he has served as the pastor of River Christian Church in Stevenson, Washington. He's also served small rural churches in Montana and here in Oregon. He served as the director of Village Missions Center for Leadership Development and has been an adjunct professor for a number of Bible colleges and seminaries in the area of small church studies. He's also taught in Russia, the Philippines, Canada, and Mexico. And I'm delighted to uh, welcome the pastor to, uh, to the program today to talk about his book, The Forgotten Church. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, most urban and suburban Americans know very little about uh, rural America, not to mention uh, rural American churches. Why do you think there is this great divide, and why is it? Im- how is it rather impacting the church in general from your perspective? Well, I think a lot of it comes from our misconceptions that we've been presented both uh, in popular culture and the media that we have kind of a dual view of of rural communities. They're either, you know, the the Mayberry RFD with this perfect world of community, or, you know, we see it uh, recently in the the reality shows that present rural America as kind of these uh, out of touch rednecks that uh, just want to shoot tree, uh, cut down trees and shoot alligators and and I think we fail to understand the real nature of not only the culture of rural America, but also the crisis that is confronting rural America today. 
you call um, the pursuit of relevance and innovation in ministry a siren's call. And you question the idea that growth in numbers is really the best way of measuring ministry impact. I think a lot of people are, are questioning that as well. But talk a little bit about this relevance and innovation in ministry as a siren's call. What do you mean by that? Well, I think I think we get caught up into the whole element that we have to be relevant and we have to be cutting edge. And we, we forget really the heart of the gospel. And the heart of the gospel and the heart of ministry is uh, preaching the scriptures and preaching the gospel and then just loving people. And, and especially in rural areas, uh, you're not going to see numerical growth. And I think if that becomes the standard by which we judge success, then we've kind of predisposed rural, the rural ministry already to failure. And especially those who go into rural ministry, we've already predisposed them to failure rather than recognize that there's real value for them out there in that rural church. Now, what are some of the primary factors that stop pastors from pursuing rural ministry? You mentioned a couple of things at the uh, at the beginning, but what are some of the things that prevent pastors from looking to the possibility of serving in a rural ministry? Well, first of all, there's uh, really a lack of presence in the educational system uh, for rural ministry. Uh, we look at most Bible colleges and seminaries will have uh, programs and ministries and degrees in urban ministry, but uh, really nothing in terms of rural ministry and understanding rural culture. So, so first of all, I think there's a lack of, of ignorance of the need, a lack of visibility in the process. And then also, because we've, we've made the focus on cutting edge, uh, we look at rural ministry, and it's anything but cutting edge. It's uh, very traditional, and so as a result, why would people want to go into rural ministry when they want to be on the cutting edge of ministry? And then there's certainly, I think, a financial aspect as well that uh, you know, rural ministry is is it's a difficult ministry, both uh, to survive financially, especially for those graduating right out of college and seminary. But it's also a very isolated ministry. It's a real challenge uh, when you're out there because you're isolated and, and oftentimes really in, in a kind of lonely setting that makes it difficult to really be effective and, and remain there in ministry. Yeah. What are some of the uh, main cons- uh, misconceptions that people have about rural life in general? I mean, uh, Andy of Mayberry has come and gone, but what do we what do we lack understanding of when it comes to rural communities in general and ministry in rural areas uh, more specifically? Well, I think there's several things. First of all, I think we need to recognize that rural America is in a crisis. Uh, some sociologists refer to rural America as the new ghetto. Uh, rural America is facing you know, a, a crisis of, of poverty. It's facing a, a crisis of um, just struggling to exist in these small communities that see this outward migration of its young people that really serve as a threat to the whole community. And we also see that in the church, that uh, the church not only is, is struggling to exist because they can't pr- attract leaders, but then the young people that are growing up in the church are, are moving to urban centers and leaving the church. And so uh, there's a real struggle and a crisis that I think we overlook. And 
we failed. We kind of see rural America as this you know, perfect world, uh, perfect community, and we fail to see that, that there's just a lot of issues going on in rural America in terms of poverty, in terms of uh, the opiate addiction. Uh, I was just last week down at a conference talking to a, a rural pastor, several rural pastors that are dealing with uh, gang issues. They're dealing with drug cartels uh, that are that are present, and we just fail to see that uh, oftentimes in our view of rural America. Mm. So for those who are attracted to doing ministry in the inner cities, they might be surprised to find that uh, rural America might provide the same opportunities that they think they can only find in a larger, uh, larger community. We're going to continue our conversation, but uh, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Pastor Glenn Damon. The book is titled The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking with Pastor Glenn Damon. He's the author, most recently, of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. We're talking about how, uh, in general, uh, we misunderstand or, or miscalculate the uh, the rural church in America. And one of the things that you uh, point out is that the cultural um, and racial realities of rural America might surprise many of your readers and our listeners today as well. Well, certainly rural America is becoming uh, more racially diverse than what it used to be. We oftentimes think of rural America as predominantly white, and and certainly it's more um, white than than urban centers, but the difference is is quickly being erased with the influx, uh, significant influx of the Hispanic population, uh, I think also you, you find, especially in the Northwest and, and the Northern states, uh, a lot of interaction with Native Americans, uh, with the reservations. And so uh, there are issues. And oftentimes, I think that as a church, we need to, to look at how are we going to address those issues and really promote racial unity, even in rural America, because we see it only as an as a inner city problem mm-hmm. or an urban problem, but it really is becoming a rural problem as well. well. Let's talk about the rural church. You offer an, an historic perspective and the the role that the rural church is playing, has played historically and is playing now and the potential for leadership in these communities. Well, I think we need to recognize that the rural church is is a, is an important part of the the overall body of Christ. And historically, the rural church and the small church uh, has been a significant supplier of pastors and missionaries, and it still is. About fifty percent of pastors and missionaries will come out of a uh, small church and rural church context. And and I think part of that is because in the the small church and rural church, uh, young people become part of the community, and they also see themselves as part. Of, of the ministry of that church because they get involved in an early age in ministry. And so they really, I think, gain an understanding that if you're going to be in a church and if you're going to be a part of that body, you need to be involved. And that really, I think, fosters a an attitude of ministry that we see in young people. And let's talk about the the, the place of the rural pastor in the community. There are some unique opportunities 
um, that uh, you find there that you wouldn't so- find in urban areas? Well, in the rural community, the pastor becomes really a pastor, not only of the church, but of the whole community. Uh, people will look up to him as, as their pastor, even though they may not ever uh, come to the, the, the church, but it's still, uh, they look to him not only to, to provide spiritual care, but also to provide uh, really uh, help in times of crisis. So the influence of a pastor really extends beyond the church walls. In fact, I believe that if a pastor is going to be effective in rural ministry, he has to to be out there in the community and really be a part of that community. He needs to see himself as as uh, really a missionary that uh, integrates into the community and gets involved in the lives of the, the kids at high school and, and gets involved in in just really all kinds of different activities uh, to to really demonstrate the love of Christ to, to rural people, because that's how we're going to reach them. Mm-hmm. It's it's relationally based evangelism rather than event oriented evangelism. Now, your book, The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America, doesn't just advocate that we uh, have a growing appreciation for the role that the rural church plays in carrying out uh, God's will during our time. But you also suggest developing strategic partnerships and that we need to recognize the value of one another in ways that can be constructive and that the larger urban churches can come alongside and support uh, what's happening in rural America as well. Well, certainly... I think it goes back to our, our, our ecclesiology, that we need to recognize that the health of, of the church is not bound just in the local body, but it's also found in the universal church. And if the church is going to be healthy in America, it's going to, it's going to involve all the churches, both urban and rural, to be healthy. And if, if one's not or one's being overlooked or neglected, it's going to affect the whole body. And so what I see... Is is that the rural church needs? They need the assistance of the urban church, not just in terms of sometimes financially helping to support the pastor, but also in terms of resources and training. As rural America is now confronted with the the new ghetto, if you would, and and how are they going to be affected in doing that? And, and then the urban church can learn from the rural church in terms of. What is a community? What is what is the simplicity of the church? That the church is not about programs, and it, but it's about a, a community of believers. And so, I think there can be really a a, a mutual benefit uh, as the, the churches would interact, and the urban church would become integrated with involved in a rural church, and and forming a partnership where they could encourage and help one another. And I think they could both learn. Uh, from each other and really help each other become healthier in the body of Christ. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, your own story is rooted in the impact of pastors devoted to rural uh, communities dating back uh, decades. Tell us a bit of your story and how the church impacted you as a young person. Well, my uh, I grew up in a small little village missions church in Idaho. It still is. And, you know, what I saw with these individuals that came out in, in served these small communities, they came with a passion for people. And it really was about relationships. And that's really uh, equipped me for my ministry to, to see that relationships are really the, the essence of ministry. Uh, but I look back and I think, you know, these, these individuals, 
they were not just uh, good preachers and preached the word, but but as a, a young person in a small church, I got to know the pastor and got to really see their life. And I think that's what sometimes what we miss mm-hmm. in in the church today is the pastor be, is seen only from the pulpit, and especially the children, they really don't get to know the pastor. And that was the value in the rural churches. They got I got to know them and see their really their heart, and that really impacted me and really. I was instrumental in my own call to ministry. Yeah, and your appreciation for serving in in um, these communities. Now, how can urban and suburban churches best partner with and support the rural churches? Well, I think there's several ways. Uh, one is, you know, get involved and and uh, get to know rural people, get to know uh, pastors and in whatever in their association or denomination, and, and value them. Uh, recognize the value that they have to contribute back to the the broader evangelical church. Uh, Certainly, I think they can form partnerships and providing resources and assistance. Uh, I guess in an ideal world, I'd love to to see where an urban church and a a rural church would would really form a partnership and uh, visit one another exchange pastors for a Sunday, but really start to get to know one another and, and see how they could help the, the rural church, uh, not just financially, but in terms of you know sharing resources that the urban church has, but the, the rural church can't afford, yeah, yeah. and being able to provide that, and, and some of the training and dealing with the issues that are confronting rural areas. Well, once again, the book is titled The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters to Every Church in America. And it's a great call for us as the body of Christ to recognize the value in whatever form we take and to come alongside one another. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk with us and for drawing our attention to the needs of the rural church. Well, thank you for, for having me on your show and, and just supporting that ministry. Appreciate you very much. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Glenn, uh, uh, Glenn Damon is a pastor and the author of The Forgotten Church, Why Rural Ministry Matters for Every Church in America. It's a great book for young seminarians who are thinking about uh, their call and uh, perhaps uh, hadn't considered serving in a rural community with all the challenges that may bring. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up. Later in the program, in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Major Scott Husing, United States Marine Corps. We'll get a military perspective on issues of the uh, Korean summit that took place yesterday. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Major Scott Husing, USMC, that's Marine Corps. He's the author of Regnery's award-winning bestseller, Echo in Ramadi. He's going to offer a military perspective on issues raised in the summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. And he's very concerned about some of the things that the president said following that get-together. That's in our last segment today, which is kind of unusual to have a guest in the last segment, but we're going to do it anyway. Well, the trial over the Justice Department's lawsuit to block AT&T's purchase of Time Warner is not just about the combination of two massive companies. It's about tectonic shifts in the media and technology industries. It's about how and where we consume content, and it's about the data that companies like Netflix, Facebook, and Amazon collect on viewing habits and consumer behavior that gives them a leg up over companies like Time Warner and AT&T. 
The trial is also a landmark for the entire industry as companies like Disney, Fox and Comcast wait to see how the judge rules before moving ahead with their own mega deals. If AT&T and Time Warner win, and by the way, we have a verdict, I'll share that in a moment, it will likely be full steam ahead. But if the ruling falls in the Justice Department's favor, a new era of government scrutiny over these types of mergers could freeze further consolidation in the industry. Well, the lawsuit landed like a bomb when it was filed in November of 2017, more than a year after the two companies announced the deal. Well, government suits of this kind are rare, especially in so-called vertical mergers, that is, the combination of two companies that don't directly compete with one another. Time Warner is a content producer, while AT&T is a content distributor via its DirecTV satellite services and mobile phone business. It's like a pipe producer buying the company that creates the material that flows through the pipes. Well, the last time the government sued to stop a vertical merger, as this was, was in the 1970s. Well, the final decision rests entirely on Judge Richard Leon. His ruling will depend on whether he finds that the purchase would violate antitrust laws which prohibit mergers or acquisitions that within reasonable probability are likely to lessen competition. He's repeatedly noted the magnitude of the case and its importance to the future of the industry and said that he expects his written opinion to be hundreds of pages long. Well, he's not limited to ruling yes or no. He can also essentially force a third option in which he tells AT&T and Time Warner he'd allow the deal to proceed, but only if the companies make certain changes to the transaction. That could involve so-called behavioral remedies, like requiring AT&T and Time Warner to agree to certain conditions that will help determine how they negotiate. Well, there's a lot uh, that goes into this decision. But we learned today, as expected, that AT&T did, in fact, prevail in that legal battle over the proposed acquisition of Time Warner. The federal judge did, in fact, rule in favor of the telecom giant today, despite the federal government's opposition. Well, AT&T, the mobile carrier and broadband provider that also owns uh, DirecTV, reached an agreement to take over Time Warner in October of 2016. A year later, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit to block the deal, arguing that the ownership of Time Warner would limit competition and increase costs for consumers in the form of pricier cable bills. The deal included Time Warner's stable of media content, including the Warner Brothers film studio, cable television networks like HBO and CNN. Wall Street and the industry analysts have closely followed this legal battle. As I mentioned a moment ago, antitrust regulators have historically opposed these so-called horizontal mergers between companies operating in the same business area. The Trump administration's attempt to block the um, AT&T Time Warner deal, a vertical merger, was seen as a potential precedent-setting case that would reshape deal-making across the media and telecom sectors. Well, with AT&T prevailing in its defense of the deal, the odds that uh, T-Mobile's purchase of Sprint will uh, receive antitrust approval could rise. The case also may impact Comcast's expected pursuit of some 21st century Fox assets. Walt Disney, agreed to pay $52 billion for Fox's film and television businesses, not including cable news and sports networks. But Comcast is preparing uh, a uh, competing bid. So there you have it. Decision made. What this means moving forward, I suppose we'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, Facebook has data sharing partnerships with at least four Chinese electronics companies, including a manufacturing giant that has a close relationship with China's government. The social media company said, well, the agreements, which date to at least 2010, gave private access to some user data to Huawei, a telecommunications equipment company that's been flagged by American intelligence officials as a national security threat, as well as Lenovo 
Oppo and TCL. Well, the four partnerships remain in effect, but Facebook officials said in an interview that the company would wind down the Huawei deal by the end of the week. And that was... Uh, couple days ago. Facebook gave access to the Chinese device maker along with other manufacturers, including Amazon, Apple, BlackBerry, Samsung, whose agreements were disclosed by the New York Times. The deals were a part of an effort to push more mobile users onto the social media starting in 2007, before standalone Facebook apps worked well on phones. Well, the agreements allowed device makers to offer some Facebook features, such as address books like buttons and status updates. Facebook officials said the agreement with the Chinese companies allowed them access similar to what was offered to BlackBerry, which could retrieve detailed information on both device users and all of their friends, including religious and political leanings, work and education history, as well as relationship status. Well, Huawei used its private access to feed a social phone app that let users view messages and social media accounts in one place, according to the officials. Facebook representative, representatives rather said the data shared with Huawei stayed on its phones, not the company's servers. But Senator John Thune, the South Dakota Republican who leads the Commerce Committee, has demanded that Facebook provide Congress with details about its data partnerships. Facebook is learning hard lessons that meaningful trans- Transparency is a high standard to meet, Senator Thune said. His committee also observes uh, overseas, rather, the Federal Trade Commission, which is investigating Facebook to determine whether the company's data policies violate a 2011 consent decree with the commission. So Facebook continuing to face some heat out of Washington. And four of the world's biggest tech platforms uh, have working partnerships with a left-wing nonprofit that has a track record of inaccuracies and routinely labels conservative organizations it disagrees with as hate groups. Facebook, Amazon, Google, and Twitter all work with or consult with the Southern Poverty Law Center in in policing, rather, their platforms for hate speech or hate groups. Uh, The SPLC uh, is uh, on a list of external experts and organizations that Facebook works with to inform our hate speech policies. A spokeswoman for for Facebook um, told the Daily Caller uh, News Foundation in an interview, well, Facebook consults the outside organizations when developing changes to hate speech policies, noting that Facebook representatives will typically hold between one to three meetings with the groups. Well, citing privacy concerns, the Facebook spokeswoman declined to name all the outside groups working with Facebook, but did confirm that the Southern Poverty Law Center is a participant. And one of the concerns has been they've placed that label, they've slapped that label on organizations like Alliance Defending Freedom, which is by no stretch of the imagination a hate group, but does disagree with the Southern Poverty Law Center on a number of issues. Uh, And again, this is resulting in the censorship of certain kinds of communication. Again, Facebook, Amazon, Google and Twitter all are working with this uh, particular group. Beware. 16 minutes after five o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Twenty-two minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I meant to mention earlier, as you might recall, um, Mr. Cudlow, Larry Cudlow, who is a former CNBC contributor and Wall Street Journal economist, plays a leading role in the crafting of trade policy for the United States. And the president t- uh, tweeted yesterday the news only minutes before his historic meeting with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un that Larry Kudlow suffered a heart attack and had been hospitalized but was in good condition. Well, White House economic advisor Kudlow is an important part of the trade policy 
um, the shaper of U.S. trade policy, and he did suffer a um, heart attack uh, and is uh, currently in Walter Reed Medical Center. Um, the president tweeted at the time that earlier today, National Economic Council director and assistant to the president, Larry Kudlow, experienced what his doctors say was a very mild heart attack. This was uh, Press Secretary Sarah Sanders speaking to reporters uh, Monday evening. Larry is currently in good condition at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, and his doctors expect uh, he will make a full and speedy recovery. The president and his administration send their thoughts and prayers to Larry and his family, she said. Well, the president, as I mentioned, he tweeted the news earlier, literally minutes before his historic meeting with uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Now, Kudlow is a former CNBC contributor, Wall Street Journal economist. He's played a leading role in crafting policy toward America's major trade partners, including China. Just last weekend, he accused Canada of directing polarizing comments toward the United States following a fractious G7 meeting of advanced economics. Rather, Uh, The conclave in Quebec pitted the United States against its traditional allies, which are trying to head off a full-blown trade war. The president saying uh, we need to balance the playing field. The message did not resonate well. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that he apparently is doing uh, well. We heard that sort of obscure message from the president uh, just before his, uh, via tweet, just before his meeting with Kim Jong-un. And I know uh, I wondered how he was doing. And there you have the update. In other news, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein has threatened to uh, subpoena emails, phone records, and other documents from lawmakers and staff on the Republican-led House Committee during a tense meeting earlier this year, according to emails reviewed by um, Fox News documenting the encounter and reflecting what aides described as a personal attack. The emails memorialized a January 2018 closed-door meeting involving senior FBI and Justice Department officials as well as members of the House Intelligence Committee. The account claimed that Rosenstein he um, threatened to turn the tables on the committee's uh, inquiries regarding the Russia probe. The DAG, the Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, he criticized the committee for sending our requests in writing and was further uh, critical of the committee's request to have DOJ, FBI do the same when responding. The committee's then senior counsel for counterterrorism, Cash Patel, wrote in the House Office of General Counsel, going so far as to say that if the committee likes being litigators, then we, the Department of Justice, too, are litigators, and we will subpoena your records and your emails, referring to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and Congress overall. A second House committee staffer at the meeting backed up Patel's account, writing, let me just add that watching the Deputy Attorney General launch a sustained personal attack against a congressional staffer in retaliation for vigorous oversight was astonishing and disheartening. Also, having the nation's number one for these matters, law enforcement officer threatened to subpoena your calls and emails was downright chilling. Well, the committee staffers noted that Rosenstein's um, comment could be interpreted as meaning the department would vigorously defend a contempt action, which might be expected. But the staffer continued, I also read it as a not so veiled threat to unleash the full prosecutorial power of the state against us. Well, the FBI disagrees with a number of characterizations of that meeting, as described in the excerpts of a staffer email provided uh, to local media, the FBI said in a statement. And a DOJ official says that Rosenstein never threatened anyone in the room with criminal investigation. The official said the uh, department and bureau officials in the room are all quite clear that the characterization of events laid out uh, here is false. So we have a difference of opinion of what actually happened. But it does tell you that there is uh, certainly tension uh, that has built over many months 
uh, as early as uh, January over whether or not information is going to be made available at the request of members of Congress. Well, Senator Dianne Feinstein essentially admitted over the weekend that she didn't pay much attention to immigration issues under the former president, Barack Obama. But now she criticizes President Donald Trump over them, when in fact much of what she's seeing now was already in place then. Appearing on CNN's State of the Union with host uh, Jake Tapper, Feinstein was asked by Tapper whether or not she would uh, say people who wanted to know uh, where was all this activism over immigration issues during the Obama years? She admitted candidly, I'm quoting, I didn't really know en- uh, enough about it at that time to focus on it. She replied, claiming that immigration issues are worse today than under Obama, which is not true in terms of numbers and how things are being handled. I do, uh, I do know enough about it now, she admitted. We have had a hearing in the Judiciary Committee. We did have testimony. I find it just inhumane, callous, and something I never thought my country would do. Feinstein continued. Um, so it is very worrisome, and we have to, uh, to stop it. And again, many of the practices that she is critical of today didn't originate with this administration. And whether or not they're right or wrong, good or bad is not the point. The point is, as a sitting member of the U.S. Senate, she suddenly has had an awakening in which these issues matter to her. And I see this occur so frequently when it comes to political issues. It depends on um, whose ox is being gored and what political uh, hay can be made. And suddenly there's an awakening over an issue that was of little concern uh, in the past because politically it's uh, it's more useful than it was then. We we talked about some of these same issues. Um, and in fact, the uh, the rate of uh, people being returned who were trying to immigrate to the country under the previous administration, but there was very little interest and an effort to sort of hush things down because, well, under the previous administration, uh, the motive could not have been anything other than Um, what was in the best interest of the country. Hmm. Well, National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden blew the lid off U.S. government surveillance methods about five years ago. But intelligence chiefs complain that revelations from that trove of classified documents he disclosed are still trickling out. That includes recent reporting on a mass surveillance program run by close U.S. ally Japan and on how the NSA targeted Bitcoin users to gather intelligence to support counterterrorism and to combat narcotics and money laundering. The Intercept, an investigative publication with access to Snowden documents, published stories on both subjects. The top U.S. counterintelligence official said journalists have released only about 1% taken by the 34-year-old American now living in exile in Russia. So we don't see this issue ending anytime soon. This past year, we had more in, uh, international Snowden-related documents and breaches than ever, says uh, the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center in a recent conference, Bill Evanina. Since 2013, when Snowden left, there have been thousands of articles around the world with really sensitive stuff that's been leaked. On June 5th, 2013, The Guardian in Britain published the first story based on Snowden's disclosures. It revealed that a secret court order was allowing the U.S. government to get Verizon to share the phone records of millions of Americans. Later stories, including those in Washington Post, disclosed other snooping and how U.S. and British spy agencies had accessed information from cables carrying the world's telephone and Internet traffic. Snowden's defenders maintain that the U.S. government has for years exaggerated the damage his disclosures caused. Glenn Greenwald, a, uh, an Intercept co-founder and former journalist at The Guardian, said there are thousands upon thousands of documents that journalists have chosen not to publish because they would harm people's reputations or privacy rights 
or because it would expose legitimate surveillance programs. It's uh, been almost five years since newspapers around the world began reporting on the Snowden archive, and the NSA has offered all kinds of shrill and reckless rhetoric, he says, about the damage it's caused, but never any evidence of a single case of a life being endangered, let alone harmed, Greenwald maintains. Well, U.S. intelligence officials say they are still counting the cost of his uh, disclosures that went beyond actual intelligence collected to um, how it was collected, the method. Eviana, or rather Evanina, said intelligence agencies are finishing their uh, seventh classified assessment of that damage. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. 37 minutes, 50, 30, 40, 40. 37 minutes after 5 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a statement from the mayor, Jenny Durkett, Durkin, I think, and seven of the nine city council members in Seattle announcing the plan to reconsider the head tax that was uh, has spurred so much controversy and a repeal effort by business. We heard you less than a month after roiling Seattle, making national headlines by voting unanimously in favor of that controversial head tax on big businesses like Amazon. The city council has reversed itself and it voted to repeal the head tax. Council President Bruce Harrell announced the move without warning on Monday and vowed to move at lightning speed to kill the measure, responding to a backlash from business leaders and residents who say they don't trust the council to spend wisely. Harrell scheduled a special meeting today and said he would sponsor the repeal legislation, which appears uh, to have enough votes. And in fact, it did. He and six others on the council joined the mayor in a statement signaling their support for nixing the $275 per employee per year tax, which was supposed to raise $47 million every year, um, starting in 2019 to fund low income housing and homeless services. Council members said talks with the constituents had persuaded them to change course. Maybe that and a little bit of math. And my guess is uh, some of these large employers who said, no, we're not uh, we're not sticking around. Well, the news of the sudden turnaround, unprecedented in recent Seattle politics, by the way, also comes as the council stares down the prospects, prospects rather of a long and bitter battle for votes. A, A business backed campaign called No Tax on Jobs had planned to submit petition signatures today to qualify a referendum on the head tax for the November ballot, having raised more than $200,000 and attracted a small army of volunteers. The people I talk to, whether it's at the grocery store, the coffee shop, basketball game, people do not seem convinced the employee hour tax strategy is the right solution. Harold said in an interview at City Hall, I think we have to listen. Probably good to listen ahead of time. And anyway, by approving the tax, despite opposition from Amazon and other behemoths in the Seattle area, politicians there drew praise from progressive activists and ire from conservative pundits all across the country. Some California cities now are considering whether to follow suit and repealing the tax will likely send ripples down Interstate 5 and beyond. But repeal they have. By the way, George Herbert Walker Bush enjoyed a relaxing birthday today as he became the first former U.S. president to turn 94. The nation's 41st president was receiving calls and taking it easy at his seaside home eight days after being released from a hospital where he was treated for low blood pressure, his chief of staff, Gene Becker, announced. Several of his children were in town, including former President George W. Bush. Another son, Neil Bush, called on people in uh, uh, 
uh, in a newspaper opinion piece to volunteer and to become a point of light. You might remember his campaign while president. As President Bush encouraged others to be points of light, reflecting his belief that people need to help out in their communities. Well, he became the oldest U.S. president months ago and is the first to celebrate a 94th birthday, according to um, his spokesman. Former Democratic President Jimmy Carter isn't far behind at age 93, and he'll celebrate his 94th birthday on October the 1st. Two other former U.S. presidents uh, made it to 93, deceased Republicans Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. The Central Intelligence Agency marked Bush's birthday by releasing declassified material related to his tenure as the agency's director from January of 76 to January of 77. The items include a video about his path to becoming CIA director and another about his farewell visit to the agency's employees in 1993, the final month of his presidency. Related to that visit is a copy of a schedule for a briefing over lunch to discuss Iraq, Bosnia, Somalia, counterintelligence, counter-narcotics, and CIS ops, and apparent reference to former Soviet states. After dessert, the briefs um, included presentations on Russia, North Korea, and um, uh, another cleansing operation, I have no idea, an agency acronym for uh, clandestine signals uh, intelligence. So happy birthday, President George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, having become the f- oldest uh, president uh, to survive his office. Well, Sunday is expected to reach 90 degrees, we're told, which could mark the start of the uh, stretch of triple-digit temperatures through the following Thursday and high temperatures the rest of June. According to KGW's meteorologist Rod Hill, Sunday is expected to reach 90. Forecast models have been uh, showing for weeks a very warm to hot back half of of June. Rather, It's very possible that most days will be uh, near 90 degrees or higher starting on Sunday, the 17th, and lasting through the end of the month. So get those sprinklers out. Records uh, show that most 90 degree plus days in June happened in 2015 with nine days, he said. A typical June only has about um, two 90 degree days. The high heat comes after a weekend of wintry weather in western Oregon, which was rather puzzling. After all, it was June and some people had some pretty serious hail. The most 90 degree days for a year also came in 2015 with 29 of them. The four hottest summers ever have all uh, come since 1987, an average year has about 13 rather 11 to 13 days reaching 90 degrees there seems to be plenty of data to support a recent warming trend of the portland summer getting hotter and hotter hill said last summer saw hot weather reaching 90 or better 24 days including a sizzling august that saw 11 90 degree days and went on to be the warmest august overall in the record book so be prepared for very hot temperatures very soon. 43 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Major Scott Husing, United States Marine Corps and author of the Regnery bestseller Echo in Ramadi. We're going to talk about military perspective on the uh, summit with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 5 o'clock. Apparently our guest is AWOL, as James put it. Uh, We were anticipating a conversation with Major Scott Husing uh, to talk about a military perspective on the uh, meeting between the president and North Korean uh, leader Kim Jong-un, but that uh, apparently is not going to happen. 
I wanted to let you know that um, charitable giving in the United States has topped $400 billion for the first time. This is fueled by a surging stock market, huge gifts from billionaires. Charitable giving here in the United States in 2017 topped that number for the first time ever, according to the latest comprehensive report on Americans' giving patterns. So people are still generous. The Giving USA report was released today, said giving from individuals, estates, foundations, corporations reached an estimated $410 billion in 2017, more than the gross domestic product of countries such as Israel and Ireland, given away charitably. The total was up 5.2% in current dollars. That's 3% adjusted for inflation from the estimate of $389.64 billion the previous year. Americans' record-breaking charitable giving in 2017 demonstrates that even in divisive times, our commitment to philanthropy is solid. Aggie uh, Sweeney is the chair of Giving USA, the foundation that publishes the annual report. It's uh, researched and written by the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Well, giving increased to um, eight of the nine charitable sectors identified by Giving USA. The only decline was for areas related to international affairs. The biggest increase was in giving to foundations up 15.5%. Well, that surge was driven by large gifts from major philanthropists to their own foundations, including a billion dollars from Dell Technologies CEO Michael Dell and his wife, Susan, and $2 billion from Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan. Well, other sectors uh, with increases of more than 6% included education, health, arts, and culture, environment, and animal welfare, as well as public society benefit uh, organizations, groups that work on such issues as voter education, civil rights, civil liberties, and consumer rights, so more social justice giving. And despite the record-setting goal, Americans' level of generosity is no higher than it was decades ago. For 2017, giving by individuals represented 2% of total disposable income, down from 2.4% in the year 2000, and the same as the rate in 1978. So it's impressive, but large gifts from wealthy people are making up the majority of that uh, increase. Well, taking a look at tomorrow's program, I'm uh, looking forward to a conversation with our friends from the United um, Union Gospel Mission, rather, as we have a summer of, of giving in which we focus our attention on what's happening in places around the Portland metro area where homeless people are struggling because of the summer weather. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that we're expecting record high temperatures for the remainder of this month and possibly into the, the next. And so we're going to put into perspective what that means uh, for those who are living on the streets of the Portland metro area. And it's important to put this into a broader perspective as well. Part of the Union Gospel Mission search and rescue isn't just for the purpose of of, um, enabling people living on the streets of Portland, but to give them an opportunity to make other choices. And so it begins with that meal, but it represents much more. So that's going to be our focus tomorrow for our Union Gospel Mission Radiothon, which we do every summer, because this is a time of the year. It's the end of the fiscal year. It's also the time of the year when uh, giving is down for many, if not most or all of the charitable organizations. And uh, so UGM needs our help and they'll uh, join us in studio Uh, tomorrow to talk about that. And then Pastor Rich Jones is going to host the program on Thursday as I'm going to be in Washington, D.C., or at least on my way to Washington, D.C., to uh, emcee the Conference of Restored Hope Network. Their national conference is taking place over Friday and Saturday 
And uh, I'm so honored to be asked uh, for a second time to emcee that event. So I'll be making my way there on Thursday, uh, taking a day in Washington, D.C., and flying back on Monday. So we'll be back live in studio on Tuesday. But looking forward to uh, offering Pastor Rich Jones, who will be uh, hosting and feature, uh, featured on the show on uh, on Thursday. For Friday and Monday, the best of the Georgine Rice Show will be our fair. So I hope you'll uh, plan on listening in. Once again, tomorrow is the Union Gospel Mission Radiothon. You can go to kpdq.com if you'd like more information, or you can join us from four to six as we'll not only tell the stories of those living on the streets of Portland, but we're going to hear uh, some of their stories in their own words. The search and rescue uh, mission that the Union Gospel Mission has added to its work, uh, found just yesterday, to give you an example, not yesterday, just recently, uh, found a woman who was seven months pregnant living on the streets here in Portland. They were able to connect her with the services she needs now and will need in the future when that baby comes to full term and it's time to deliver. Uh, but that happened because they didn't wait for the homeless population to come to their facility in downtown Portland, but recognized that uh, today you have to go to where they are. And that search and rescue represents more than just providing meals and, and opportunities for um uh, for help, but uh, a search and rescue for those who are looking for another and a better way. So that will be our uh, our content on tomorrow. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.